This message was recorded at Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our goal is to faithfully preach the Word of God for the salvation of sinners, the strengthening of believers, and the glory of God. Please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org and listen for more information at the conclusion of this message. I ask you to turn to uh, first to uh, Matthew 12, where we were this morning. And let's, uh, let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank You for loving us and blessing us. Lord, uh, thank You for truth that You've made known to us. For changing our hearts, opening our hearts and minds to the Gospel. Granting, Lord, that we may respond Respond positively, drawing us to Yourself. Lord, bringing us into relationship with You as sons, children, heirs. Lord, what a privilege. Lord, thank You for the privilege of being able to be involved in what You are doing in this world in kingdom work. To make us, who don't even deserve to know You, to make us co-workers. Lord, we are thankful, in short, Lord, for Your grace toward us. We who deserve none of it. And we pray, Lord, as always, uh, as we... Look at these passages tonight that You would grant grace that we may uh, grasp the truth here, that we may understand, that we may rightly divide the Word of truth before us so that our knowledge of You grows, not, not just intellectually, but so, so that we know, know You, experience You in a more intimate way. for our edification, for Your honor, praise, and glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're actually going to look at a couple of different passages. I want to start here, though, so I can kind of uh, tell you what I'm doing and, uh, and show how it <coughs> ties in. Um, years ago... My uh, my dad had a little car. He, my dad had had lots of cars. He collected cars, and um, most of them didn't run. Some of them did, but uh, uh, a lot of them were just stashed away out in the woods behind our house uh, from uh, you know 40s models on up. Um, and even some of those were restored and ran, but but most of them didn't. I had one little car, and I was in it, and one day, and not driving, but just just sitting in it and looking and going through the stuff. And I noticed there's there was instructions on the visor, I believe, um, how to remove the hood. That's interesting, isn't it? And imagine, you know, just ask somebody, you know, hey, give me a hand here. I need help removing the hood of my car. Well, here's here's the deal. Uh, it was a Triumph Stag, and the hood was what we call the roof. It had a T-top. Over there, they don't call it the roof, they call it the hood. The hood, what we call the hood, they call the bonnet. So it also had instructions on how to raise the bonnet so you could check check the engine. Point is this, sometimes the same words have different meanings. And so, yeah, if I, if I had been, even in that car, you know, if I had been driving that car and I pulled up to a service station and said, uh, check under the bonnet, you know, he would have probably lifted my hat off my head, you know, and, uh, and looked under it or something like that. Or if I'd have said, uh, you know, can you give me a hand uh, in, in removing the hood? I'd like to take the hood off my car. Uh, he'd have thought I was nuts. The same words, in fact, you know, 
the same language. Uh, but those words used by different people have different meaning. Um, Winston Churchill once said, the United States and Great Britain were two people divided by a common language. And that's quite true. Sometimes it's even true in our own country. And you can go to another, you can go to another part of the country, and, and uh, it's it's like we're divided by a common language. Um, sometimes the same words have different meanings. We 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 ran across an example of that this morning, and I want to point out here, and uh, uh, and I want to do something a little different tonight. This is going to be more topical because I want to deal with this. Um, in regard to this passage and some others that we've already looked at. But here here in Matthew 12, and let's go down to verse 36. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Okay. Now, I just kind of skimmed over this this morning and I said, uh, you know, and I mentioned the passage in James and I said, you know, this could <laughs> could open up a whole can of worms, but we don't have time for this today, so I'm going to move on. But, but I do want to, you know, we, we won't even get to deal with it really in depth tonight, but I, but I want to point it out. Here, here's the difficulty. Jesus says in verse 37, by your words you will be justified. Justified. By your words you'll be justified. By your words you will be condemned. Well, now, think about that for a moment. Don't we teach today in, in the Protestant evangelical church, more particularly the, the Baptist church, um, the Baptist heritage, don't we teach that justification is by faith and that it's it's really not um, based on something you you do or in this case say um, but it's it's something that God does in fact um, we would say that it's it's a it's a it's a work of God done totally apart from us, outside of us. That is, it, it, it's not a work in you. I mean, this is pretty much the, the, uh, the typical Protestant Reformed view. It's, it's not a work done in you or on you. It's done totally outside of you and apart from you because, this is what we teach, justification is a, is a legal act or declaration. It's, it's something declared about you. God declares you just, justified. Well, if that's true, then how does Jesus say you're justified by your words? And, and specifically here, He's talking about careless words. He's talking about... Um, Words that flow from an evil heart, like we talked about this morning. So, is is he saying then you're you're if you're good, if you're good enough, and you speak good things, you're justified by your words. And if you're not, you're condemned. So it's it's based on what you do. Well, I think this is a case, and I'm gonna we're gonna go to some other passages and take a look. Um, but I think this is a case of using. Um, the same word with different meanings applied. Same word, different definitions. Uh, and, and I'll try to show you that. So I want to say, um, well, let me say this first of all, because also after the service, uh, this is the reason I told Jordan to go get a bulletin, because Paula mentioned the bulletin. And this, it was great, this is a great thing to point out, especially when you're, when you're coming across a passage like this, verse 37, or what we're going to look at in James 2, and you'll see what I'm talking about when we get there. But um, notice on the, in the bulletin, if, if you have one on you here, inside, I, we 
we've done this for some time. I, I don't know, probably a couple of years ago or so, I asked Michael to put the five solas in here. These are just kind of, you know, historic declaration of the, of the Reform movement, you know, since the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, the, you know, these are Latin phrases. Sola Scriptura, which means Scripture alone. Sola Gratia, which means grace alone. Sola Fide, which means faith alone. And that, that in particular is the one we're going to deal with in a moment. And Sola Christo, which means Christ alone. And Soli Deo Gloria, which means glory to God alone. So we say, you know, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And of course, it's based on uh, Scripture alone. That is, the Scripture is our sole authority in matters of faith and practice. Well, are, are, those, are those true? Is Scripture really the only authority? The supreme authority? Is, are, are we really saved by grace through faith alone? Is it really Christ alone through which someone can be saved? Faith in Jesus Christ. Um, I, I think these statements are true. Alright, let me, let, me, let me do it this way. Uh, we are saved, and, and again, this is another case of using the same word with two different definitions, but we are saved from work to work. From work to work. Now, let's, let's start, and, and uh, yeah, we better move on. I was going to point out a couple of other things in Matthew, but let's go to Hebrews. Uh, Chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 3, important passage, and, and uh, well, the whole book is important in understanding how, how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament and how the, all the Old Testament, um, the Old Covenant uh, e- economy points to Christ. Just like we've been talking about in Matthew. Now, remember, there was a promise made to the nation of Israel that when, when God delivered them out of Egypt, in fact, it was made earlier than that, but He, he began to enact it when they were delivered out of Egypt, that they, they would be taken into a promised land. Now, Abraham had been taken there uh, hundreds of years earlier, and it was shown to him, and God basically told him, you know, wherever your foot treads, this is going to belong to you, and all, you're in, all of your seed, all of your... Um, inheritance is going to possess this land. And, uh, you know, there, it was just Abraham and his immediate family and servants and so forth. Abraham and his company. Now, they had a pretty big group, but, but the promise was made to his children that they would inherit the land. Well, later, you know, there's Abraham, um, then there's Isaac and Jacob, and then later... Uh, the, the sons of Jacob wind up going down into Egypt because of a, of a famine. In fact, you, you probably know the story of Joseph being sold into slavery and, and by his brothers, and he gets taken into the land of Egypt, and there he's a, he's a slave and a, a prisoner uh, eventually. But he winds up being Pharaoh's right-hand man. By, by God's providence, I mean, it's not an accident, by God's providence, he, he enters Egypt as a slave boy, and he ultimately, uh, after doing time and all that kind of thing, he, he winds up being Pharaoh's right-hand man. He is second in charge over all of Egypt. And the famine is still bad up in, up in uh, Canaan, so uh, what we Israel today. So, long story short, he winds up getting his father and all of his brothers and their family to move to Egypt. And the Scripture tells us there were 70 Persons. There were 70 of them. Now remember, God had promised that land to them up there in Israel. And now they're going to they're go into Egypt where they will, and their children will become slaves. Seventy persons go into Egypt. That is, that's the beginning of the Hebrew nation. Seventy Jews. Four hundred years later, God delivers them through the hand of Moses, and over a million people 
<laughs> the 70 is now over a million, million and a half, two million, somewhere in there, you know, they estimate. And uh, way more than, you know, Charlton Heston led in the movie. But And over a million people emerge out of Egypt into the wilderness. And God tells them, you know, I'm taking you into the promised land. And they, they cross the, the wilderness there and they're, they're ready to go into the promised land and they send spies into the promised land to spy out the land. And the, the, the spies, 12 spies, come back and they say, look, it's, it's too much. We can't take it. The people are, there's giants out there and we're like grasshoppers in their sight. And only two of them, Joshua and Caleb said, uh, you know, we can do this. <laughs> God's on our side. God said He would give us the land. Let's go in and take the land. We can do it. It, it really is a land flowing with milk and honey, like God said. And uh, the other spies uh, were able to persuade the people, and the people said, uh, we can't do it. I mean, we're like grasshoppers in the sight of the people that live down there. We'll, all, we'll just go in there and die. Well, we'd rather go back to Egypt. Why didn't you just leave us in Egypt instead of bringing us out here to this strange place to die in battle? God promised to give them the land and they didn't believe. And that's what the writer, that's kind of a long way to get to this passage, but that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying here. They couldn't enter into the rest that God promised. Go into a land flowing with milk and honey because of unbelief. And the writer of Hebrews here in chapter 3, verse 7, he quotes from Psalm 95. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, verse 7, Today, if you will hear His voice, and this part is a quote from Psalm 95, Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, saw my works forty years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. And they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, what God was promising them was rest. You're going to enter into the rest. I'm, I'm taking you out of slavery so that the work is over in that sense. And you're just going to go in and in your own land that I'm giving you and rest. And they didn't believe. So, verse 11, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, verse 12, the writer of Hebrews is exhorting his readers, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Remember that word. Whenever you see the word belief or unbelief, it's faith. It's the same word in the Greek. Pistos, the word, or pistos, it's the word uh, that's translated faith or belief. In this case, unbelief. Uh, because it's negated there, so, uh, but in other words, because of no faith. Because you didn't believe. So, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Uh, just a side note here, that's, that's, you know, we've, we've talked a lot, like on Wednesday nights, about our responsibility of, as a church. Uh, here, here's a great passage for that. So what he's saying, exhort one another daily um, while it's still called today, lest you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Verse 14, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Again, he's talking about faith. 15, While it is said, Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. He's quoting again from Psalm 95. For who, verse 16, for who having heard rebel, for who having heard rebelled, uh, indeed was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now, with whom was he angry? That is, with, with whom was God angry? Forty years. Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? Now, here's, that's key again. Those who did not obey. So, we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. 
lack of faith. Again, it's the word uh, apistion. It's uh, pistos, negated by the a prefix there, just like atheist, no God, um, no faith. So they could not enter in because of no faith. God promised them rest. They didn't believe. Rest from their work, but they didn't believe. But now, uh, what, the, what the writer of Hebrews is, is saying to us, this is all fulfilled in Christ, and the rest of God is Christ. And you enter in by faith. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering His rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard, and again, he's referring to those people back in the wilderness, the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. So again, he's another way of saying the Word of God came to them, the promise of rest, and they didn't believe, and so it didn't profit them because the Word wasn't mixed with faith. They didn't believe. Verse 3, For we who have believed do enter that rest. That is, we who have faith, we who have believed do enter that rest, as He said, So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, what He's saying is this, that rest back there, the Sabbath rest, you know, God created, uh, He even has, you know, creation in view. God created in six days, seventh day, He rested. The rest of God. And then, He, he later creates the, the, uh, the nation of Israel and He commands them to keep the Sabbath, right? Sabbath, the word Sabbath means seventh, seventh day. They're to rest. Why? Because that's what God did when He created and that's that's the rest of God. On the seventh day, you rest from your labor. The labor ceases. The work, that is, ceases, and you rest. Right? Well, um, that is also pictured in them being able to enter the promised land. And he's saying they could not enter that rest that God promised them because they didn't believe. So all of those things... The Sabbath rest, seventh day of following creation. The Sabbath law, and even prior to the law, there were those who, you know, observed the Sabbath. But the Sabbath law, God commands it of His people. You rest, you work six days, seventh day you rest. So the, the, the seventh day following creation, the Sabbath law where people were commanded to stop work and rest, and even entrance into the promised land and resting, in safety there, all of those things point to a spiritual reality. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. And that is rest in Christ, where we cease from our works and rest in Him. Meaning, we don't try to achieve salvation. How do we enter then? By faith. We believe. They, they, what he's saying, they could not enter in because of unbelief. But we enter in the true rest, God, the rest of God, which is only realized in Christ, through faith. We have, verse 3, for we who have believed do enter that rest. Verse 4. For He has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all His works. And again, in this place, they shall not enter My rest. Again, He uses the two examples I was just talking about there. Verse 6, Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So what he's saying is the Old Testament children of Israel, way before David, were promised rest, but they didn't believe, and so they weren't allowed to enter in. And so, hundreds of years later, David comes on the scene, and he's still talking about this rest in Psalm 95. And he's saying, don't be like, don't, in verse, if you go back to verse 8 for a minute, David is saying, don't harden your hearts as, the, as in the rebellion in the wilderness. 
He's saying, don't be hard-hearted like our forefathers were. It's an exhortation to believe. Believe and enter the rest. Cease from your work. Enter the rest. Now, the writer of Hebrews uh, goes on here um, in verse 6. Since, therefore, it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a time as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua, some of your translations may say Jesus, but it's not talking about Jesus of Galilee. It's talking about Joshua, Old Testament Joshua. Um, it's the same name. Jesus, if you had been around when Mary called Jesus for dinner, you would have not heard Jesus, probably. You would have heard her call him Joshua because they were Jews. And, and his, his name was, in the Hebrew, Yahshua. Uh, translated into Greek, it's Iesus. Translated into uh, English, it's Jesus. Okay, So his, his name was Joshua. So they have the same name. But verse 8, this is talking about the Joshua of the Old Testament. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. What does he mean by that? He's saying that rest in the, in the land of Canaan was not the ultimate rest. It was pointing to something greater. Rest in Christ. And that's what he's meaning in verse 9. There remains therefore a rest... And that word, by the way, is the word Sabbath. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. For he who has entered... Now, listen closely here. Because this is all important in, in applying these things spiritually. For he who has entered his rest, that is God's rest, for he who has entered God's rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from His. Now, that's His point all the way through, that justification is by faith. So, just like um, on the Sabbath, at the end of the week, they had to, or at the beginning of the week, rather, they had to cease, I'm sorry, the end of the week, they had to cease from their works on the seventh day, the Sabbath day, and rest. He's saying, it's that way spiritually. Those who enter into the rest of God, that is, those who are reconciled to God through, in Jesus Christ, how did, they, how did they get in there? How did we get into God's rest? We, we ceased from our work and entered by faith. We, we believe, unlike them. They, were, they could not enter in because of their unbelief. And by the way, he uses the word... Uh, this is going to be important too when we get to James, if I, if I don't forget to point it out. But if you look back in chapter 3, verse 19, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. And then, uh, if you look down to chapter 4, verse 6, look at the last part of the verse. Did not enter because of disobedience. He uses unbelief. This, this, this is the Holy Spirit, okay, through the pen of whoever wrote Hebrews. We don't know who the author of Hebrews was, but it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. He uses the word disobedience and, and the word unbelief interchangeably. That's very important. That's very important for an understanding of what the Christian life is about. In other words, to believe is to obey. It's to submit to Christ in obedience. The, the, the two uh, are, are tied together. They're intertwined. Faith and obedience. They're, they're not diametrically opposed. Alright, so here the point is, you enter by faith. Now, let's just try to reinforce that a little bit with Paul. Go to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And let's go down to about verse 20. So you enter the rest of God. The rest of God meaning relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You, you enter the rest of God by stopping, stop working. That is, you quit trying to earn it and you just have faith in Christ. You cease from your own works and enter the rest of God. Now, in Romans... Um, 
let's see, verse 20, therefore, uh, and I have to kind of jump into the middle of Paul's thought here, but I, th- I think it will still be clear what I'm pointing out. Verse 20, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. Remember that word? By the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, that is, in God's sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. The righteousness of God through faith, belief in Jesus Christ to all and upon all who believe or who have faith. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by grace. That's where we get the idea of grace alone. Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood, Propitiation just meaning he, he carried our sins, uh, uh, he bore them, he bore our sins away. He bore them upon himself and away from us and paid the price. Whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. There it is again, through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present at the present time, His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So you see what he's talking about here is God justifying and how we're justified. We're justified by faith. And God has demonstrated His own righteousness. In other words, the the suggestion here is if He had just kind of swept our sin under the rug, that would be unjust. And God is a just God. He's not unjust. So He can't ignore our sin. That's, that's, you hear that a lot out in the world today, and that's what people think. Well, if God's so good, why don't He just forgive us all? Well, because God is, yes, He's good. And He's also just. And He, he cannot ignore evil. He must deal with it justly. I mean, I say must. It's not because I put that demand on him, or somebody else other than himself puts that demand on him. It's just his character. That's what is consistent with his character. So he deals with sin. That's what he means here in verse 25. Um, he has demonstrated his righteousness um, in, the, in, the, in the life and death, the crucifixion of Christ. In other words, the sin is dealt with. God didn't sweep it under the rug. Everybody that is saved... Our sin was paid for by our Savior at Calvary. Paid in full. So God remains just. And at the same time, He can justify us. That's verse 26. To demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. And there it is again. Faith in Jesus. The believer's are the ones that are justified. We're justified by faith. Um, Therefore, verse 28, Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds. That's the word works. Man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So, that's what he's saying. It's not works. You cease from your works. You're justified by faith. When he talks about law here and keeping the law, he's meaning, just like he says there in verse 26, works. Works for righteousness. I'm going to work my way in. I'm going to earn favor with God. And Paul's saying it don't happen that way. Justification is by faith alone. So, we conclude, verse 28, that a man is justified by faith apart from works, apart from the deeds of the law. Verse, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in the few remaining minutes, go to James chapter 2. 
James chapter 2. If you want to hold your place here, uh, you know, Romans, you might, just so you can kind of look back at that. Um, or else you can just hear me reference it again. But James chapter 2. So it seems clear, I think, from the writer of Hebrews, other places too, but from the writer of Hebrews and from the writings of Paul, and we could also look at other passages like Ephesians 2. We're not going to take time to do that. But from the writings of Paul, that justification is by faith and faith alone. You, alone, right? Because you, you cease from work and enter in the rest of God through faith. We are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. You could say we're saved by works, but it's the works of Jesus. It's what He did in His life and in His death. Not our own works. We're not saved by our own works. All right, now, uh, but keep that in mind. Faith alone. Uh, Now, chapter 2, look down, James 2. Verse, uh, let's see, 20. Well, let me, let me read verse 14 first. Look, look at verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Well, that's one of those rhetorical questions. The obvious answer is no. I mean, and that's what the way James phrases it. It's just a rhetorical question, and, and he's looking for a negative response. Can faith save him? And his answer would be no. He gives an explanation. Verse 15, If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace. And by the way, here again is some uh, insight on what the church is about, what we're here for, what we're to do. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, James says. Show me your faith without your works. I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God? You do well. There's that word believe again. It's faith. In other words, he's saying, you, you got faith? You got faith? There's one God? Good. Good for you, he says. Even the demons have that kind of faith. Even demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, faith without works is dead. Yeah, he brings forward, interestingly, Abraham as an example. The very same person, we, we didn't read through that, but you can read through Romans 4. The very same person Paul calls forth, you know, puts on the witness stand. Here's, here's Abraham, he's proof that we're saved by faith alone. Well, James calls the same witness to make his case. Verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Wait a minute, didn't we just read in Romans, Paul says we're saved by faith apart from works? And James says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith was made perfect? And the Scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. The very same passage, Genesis 15:6, that Paul uses in making his case concerning faith alone. Verse 24, you see then that a man is justified by works. You see then, let's read that again. We might have messed up there. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Now, he gives another example. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. 
Okay, so <clears throat> first point was was this. We're saved from work. And that's why I went through all those passages in Hebrews three and four. You you've got to cease from works. Quit trying to earn it. Quit trying to be good enough. Quit trying to do enough. You've got to cease from work if you're going to rest in God. If you're going to get in on God's rest, you've got to quit working. Because the only way to enter God's rest is faith. And, and the, the word I like to use to define faith or describe it is the word trust. It just means you've got to trust. You've got to trust Christ. You, you can't work your way in. The only way you can enter in God's rest is trust Christ. But the second point is this. First point, the, the first point is saved from work. Second point, saved to work. We're, we're saved from work to work. From work to work. You say, well, now, wait a minute. That's a contradiction. Now, we're either saved from work or, you know, we still got to, we either cease from work or, or we keep working. Which, which one is it? Contradiction. No, 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 no. The law of, uh, what's called the law of non-contradiction is um, that two things cannot be, uh, opposite in the, in the same relationship and in the same way. In other words, you know, I could say, I, I, I can't be, I can't be skip and non-skip <laughs> at the same time in the same relationship in the same way. To be those two things would be a contradiction. I can't be skip and non-skip. But I, but I can be skip in one relationship and I can be Oh, I don't know, something else, an employee or whatever in another relationship. A different thing, a different relationship without contradiction. What I'm saying is this. Same thing I said about the hood and the bonnet. The word work... Let's not even go there yet. The word justify. Let me go back to the word justify. The word justified when used by Paul, I think, has a different meaning than the word justified used by James. So when Paul says, Romans 5.1, we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And, and, you, and you, need, you need to check this out for yourself. Read, read Romans. We're justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Or therefore we have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. When Paul says that, he's meaning right standing before God. In other words, that's how we become righteous. It's not anything we do. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. You've got to cease from your work. There's nothing you can do to earn salvation. You, you can't work your way in. You've got to forget that and you've got to trust Christ. And you're justified by trusting Christ. That is... That's how you enter into a right relationship with God. That's how you're made. You're justified in the sense that you are now righteous before God. Your righteousness, your, your righteous standing is based upon the righteousness of Christ, not, not on you or me. But when you get over here to James, When James uses the word justified, I think he's using it the same way I explained this morning that I think Jesus is using it. And again, read down through here for yourself and see. James seems to be talking about, let me say it this way, the evidence of salvation. That's what he means by justified. In other words, how do you know you're saved? How do other people know you're saved? Because they can see evidence. So you're, you're justified in that sense. Not in the sense of being righteous before God. But in the sense of, of, of it being known before people. So he says, for example, 
Verse 18, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works. How are you going to do that? <laughs> Again, he's not saying peace with God like Paul is in Romans 5. He's talking about your right standing with God being, being evident, being known before other people. Show me, show me. Show me your faith without your works. And the suggestion is you can't do it. So he says, I will show you my faith by my works. So he's not talking about working to be saved. He's talking about working because you are saved. And that's a total different thing. That's, that's the fruit. Remember this morning? Good tree bears good fruit. Bad tree bears bad fruit. An apple tree does not bear apples in order to become an apple tree. See, that would be an equivalent of doing works to be saved. I'm going to work my way into approval with God. I'm going to produce apples so that I can be an apple tree. It doesn't work. You can't do that. But, if it is an apple tree, it'll produce apples. If it is an orange tree, it'll produce oranges. If it is a pear tree, it'll produce pears. It's, it's, it's the fruit of its nature. It's the fruit of what it is. And that's the kind of works James is talking about here. And Paul does too, like in, in Ephesians 2.8 and uh, through 10. He, there again, Ephesians 2.8, he makes it clear, we're saved by grace through faith. Not of ourselves, Paul says. It's not of works, he says, lest any man should boast. It's the gift of God. But then he goes on to say in verse 10, that we're called unto good works. So, Paul saying, you're justified by faith alone. That is, you're made righteous with God only through faith in Jesus Christ. And James is saying, so you can say Paul is saying we're, we're saved. We're saved by faith. And James is saying the only way your salvation can be shown to be true is through works. So Paul says you're righteous before God through faith. James says your righteousness is seen by others by works. They're using the same words. Justification, justified, but with different meaning, different application. And even the word works, again, when Paul is speaking negatively of works, he's meaning working, earning salvation. But he also, like James, when he's speaking positively about works being the fruit of the Christian life, Paul does that too. And again, that's Ephesians 2.10. God has saved us unto good works that we should walk in them. So, we're saved from work. Yes, you can't work your way into salvation. You're not justified. You're not made right with God by anything you do. And we're saved to work. So, if the tree's good, the fruit's good. If you're truly saved, Works will follow and bear witness to the fact that you are saved. For example, you won't be able to say to a needy brother, uh, go in peace, be warmed and filled. You know, God bless you. <laughs> You'll have to do something about it. Your, your, your faith takes action. It, it's evidenced by action, rather. Because it's not dead. Abraham was willing to offer up Isaac because he truly believed. That was the fruit of his faith. The fruit of his relationship with God. Rahab was willing to risk her own life hiding the spies because she believed the God of Israel was going to conquer the land. And she was willing to risk her life. That was the fruit of her belief in God. So, 
some people have suggested there's a contradiction between Paul and James. I don't think so. I think they're just talking about two different things. They're using the same words, talking about two different things. So, uh, again, um, should, should Christians do good works? Absolutely. Absolutely. We're called to work. These are also true. Works don't save you. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for Your truth. And Lord, thank You for uh, making Yourself known to us, giving us these truths to to live by, to, to measure ourselves by. And we know, Lord, uh, to do any good, uh, we're totally dependent on You. There's nothing, nothing good within us except Christ. Lord, uh, guard us from the idea that we can earn favor with You. We have nothing to offer. We could, we could never achieve salvation. We can never be good enough. And Lord, also, please guard us from the idea that we're to do nothing because of that. May we be rich in good works that abound to Your glory and honor and to the good of Your people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon is made available through the ministry of Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our desire is to faithfully proclaim the message of salvation which God has provided in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. For more resources and information, please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org. You may use the links there to contact us or write us at Fillmore Baptist Church, 6304 Highway 80, Princeton, Louisiana, 71067.